0: You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring John Howard. My conversation today is with John Howard. I served many years in the Parliament with him. Uh, He is a personal friend, but it's worth just recapping something of this remarkable man's story. He served as a member of the Australian Parliament for over 33 years. He was Prime Minister of Australia from 1996 to 2007, a term exceeded in Australia's history by only one man, Sir Robert Menzies. I think it's fair to say that his government and the government, which indeed I was proud to be a part of, has since been known for three major contributions, at least to the nation. Firstly, unrivalled economic responsibility, which enabled Australia to weather the storm of the GFC, the great financial crisis, and indeed, I would say COVID, perhaps better than any other nation. Securing our borders while maintaining a generous immigration scheme and indeed refugee intake to the envy of nations around the world. Thirdly, I think it's fair to say that he helped restore a strong sense of national pride and confidence as seen, for example, in the renewed consciousness Of our ANZAC heritage. I'd also add he provided us really with a prescient uh, reinvigoration of our security alliance with America. Mr Howard is a Companion of the Order of Australia. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian award in the United States. And I think enormously befittingly, but wonderfully, in January 2012, Queen Elizabeth II appointed Mr Howard to the Order of Merit. I think he has some invaluable insights to share with us at a troubled and difficult time in Australia's journey. Well, John, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk at a critical time, I think. Globally and uh, in Australia, faces, I think, some very interesting challenges. Can I come to Walter Russell Mead, writing in the Wall Street Journal? Now, he's an uh, an American professor of international affairs, and he said this alarmingly, a host of 21st century policy problems threatened to overwhelm the institutions of both national and global governance, the emergence of China as a new kind of economic and geopolitical challenger, the escalating arms race in cyber and biological weapons, the global surge of populism and nationalism, and the growing risks from poorly understood vulnerabilities and relationships in a volatile and rapidly changing financial markets. Any one of these could push the world into a cycle of crisis and conflict resembling the first half of the 20th century. I think Australians everywhere, me included, would be very interested in what you have as a long-term prime minister Seen really, I don't want to sound cheesy, but as you know, the national father now might have to say about how we preserve our place in the face of all of this. Can I begin by saying, do you accept the thesis that COVID 19 has accelerated history, that it's bringing forward uh, what uh, Neil Ferguson called the decline of Western ascendancy and the face of rising alternatives, other powers that aren't necessarily very friendly?
1: I'm tempted to draw John in answering that question on that famous um, uh, comment attributed to Chao Lai, uh, when he was asked about the impact of the French Revolution on the world, he said it was too early to tell. <laughs> now, yeah. uh, uh, I, I think it is too early. My instinct is that uh, COVID, although it's altered our lives and will leave some permanent deposits of change, particularly relating to work practices, and I think spending habits, I think there will be less overseas travel. I've struck by the number of people, necessarily in the older age bracket, who've said, well, I haven't been abroad for a year or two and I don't care if I don't go abroad again. Now, That's not my view incidentally, but I'm keen to go abroad. But I think there'll be some permanent changes, but I'm not as pessimistic uh, as um, Walter Russell Mead uh, seems to be, he's somebody I admire a lot. Uh, there's no doubt that the rise of China, particularly as a more assertive, anti-democratic, uh, diplomatically, if I can use that word, it seems a bit, uh, a bit of a contradiction in terms of diplomatically far more aggressive. The big difference between Xi Jinping and his two predecessors, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, with him I dealt very extensively was that Although the predecessors were ardent communists, and Jiang Zemin, of course, reached back to that generation of Chinese who still cooperated with the Russians. His fluency in Russian was better than his fluency in English, which, incidentally, was pretty good. But they, although they were ardent communists, and they ran dictatorial regimes, let's not kid ourselves. They were nonetheless, uh, both of them, interested in friendly relations with the rest of the world. Now, the the difference, Xi Jinping, is very marked. I think the attitude over the South China Seas, just repudiation of the international arbitration. Uh, Meade talks about the international institutions. Well... Uh, there was an institution involved in delivering a judgment on the South China Seas, and and China just chose to ignore it. Mm. And and in in doing that, not only antagonised Australia, but also antagonised uh, a lot of um, Asian countries such as the Philippines and and Vietnam. As far as Australia is concerned, the inevitable question is, how do we um, insulate ourselves against uh, the worst of those? Uh, uh, predictions coming true. Well, there's no um, magic solution that's not known. Uh, we we have to continue to run a very strong economy. Uh, we have to continue to build our defence forces. Uh, I would still like to see more debate on that, and I remain somewhat concerned, as a lot of, lot of people are, about the huge investment in the submarine programme. I just worry about that. But we also have to remain um, uh, close to those countries that we share common values with, and that obviously means the United States, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Canada. I regard the Five Eyes arrangement uh, uh, as one of the greatest contributions to uh, our security. Uh, I can't think of a better arrangement when thinking about uh, cyber attacks, thinking about Um, international terrorism, although reference to that seems to have dropped down the list a little bit in recent times, but it is still there. So there's no uh, magic bullet uh, that ignores economic strength, uh, the maximum degree of self-reliance in uh, defence that a country of our size can muster, but recognising that Security is always to be found in alliances with other nations. And also I think achieving a a balance in our international relations between supporting institutions when they work but always remembering that the nation state is still the principal organising principle of uh, international relations. And if you want somebody who best illustrated that, to my mind in the last 50 years, looked just to the north of Australia, to Lee Kuan Yew. Yeah. When he became uh, the boss, Prime Minister of an independent Singapore, pushed out of Malaysia, a small population, no natural resources, a tiny island, but out of that they built a remarkable financial hub. And, and uh, he was always somebody who thought that at the end of the day, every country had to be self-reliant, and and that applied to all of us, and most particularly our own country.
0: Lee Kuan Yew observed uh, in, I think, around 2002, that China would increasingly flex its muscles, possibly never having to resort to military power to bring others uh, to heel, and he said, we would have to work in concert uh, so that if, it, if, if one of the nations in, in, the, in the region was attacked, others supported it. We'd need that sort of group get-together. And I think that was a valuable insight. He also made the observation that if you're a shrimp in a big tank full of um, fish, make sure you're a poisoned one so that no one wants to eat you. <laughs> and, and I think that's relevant for Australia as well. You know? <laughs> I- I think it is,
1: and and the the biggest, uh, I suppose, um, geopolitical concern I have about China is what will happen to Taiwan. Yes. Ten years ago, I said and I believed that what would be the ultimate working out of Taiwan was some kind of then Hong Kong arrangement. Hmm. I no longer believe that. Nobody can believe that because China has changed utterly towards Hong Kong mm. and the clamp down there uh, is, is menacing. It's in defiance of the understanding that was reached in 1997. Uh, it will be distressing to many Australians who have relatives in Hong Kong and the connection of large numbers of Australians to Hong Kong mm. through travel and the like is... is A lot more widespread than many people appreciate. Mm. But the Chinese are not turning back. And I worry that um, there will be an attempt to intimidate uh, Taiwan into accepting a a different arrangement. I don't think the Chinese want an all-out war. Uh, I don't think they do at all. Yes, well,
0: this is Lee Kuan Yu's point, or no. was his point yeah. that they, they probably don't have to resort no, to the no, no. And, and then he, this day, and you know, as we now see, everything from biological capacity it seems, mm. through to uh, cyber attacks and 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 other ways of forcing people to heal, mm. it'll be very difficult. I would have thought uh, that, that is
1: going, and it is without doubt the biggest single mm. foreign policy challenge that we have. I mean, we we are in a challenging position with China. Uh, China is our best export market. Uh, It's not being selfish to say that we have to work hard to preserve that. I'm all in favour of um, uh, um, avoiding gratuitous conflict with China and gratuitous arguments. Um, We have to trade with China and China's an attractive uh, source of commodities for our country because we're reliable suppliers. We have high quality, for example, we have thermal coal is better than
0: most. Our beef's not bad. Either. Our
1: beef's not bad and, and <laughs> our wine is very good as well. I mean, it, it, yeah. the list goes on.
0: And the irony, of course, I mean, we've all, you and I have always believed in trade as being very important uh, for everyone. The irony, for example, of them restricting our high quality coal uh, is, is, is really not lost on anybody who looks at it. They are the losers. Well, we of actually block not I mean, markets. I,
1: I, I can't imagine anything that is more likely to do um, uh, direct and gratuitous harm to Australia than to make it harder to sell our fossil fuels, our commodities, to countries like China. I mean, it's just madness, and, and, and it, that's relevant to the debate. Uh, you can have a range of views on climate change and the pace of of renewables take up and why it's happening. But the truth is that uh, coal and iron ore, and natural gas, are going to be around for a long time and needed for a long time. And anything that makes it more difficult uh, for those industries. And when I hear the clamour of some uh, on the left of politics, not always on the left of politics, there are some closer to the centre even some of them verging to the right of politics who, who, who talk almost with glee about you know, the end of coal. Well, that's madness. It's, that will do enormous damage. That, is, that will wound Australia uh, uh, very dramatically. And I mean, that's just an expression of common sense. That's not to say that you know, we shouldn't try and reduce emissions, but uh, it's to recognise a reality that uh, we are very grateful, we should be very grateful to Providence for having given us all these natural resources and we should use them.
0: It strikes me as a great irony that if it is true that for every tonne of Australian coal that's turned away and not burnt, there'll be a substitute of 1.4 tonnes of dirtier coal, you get a worse environmental outcome. It suggests that actually it might be sensible for Australia to say that while coal is still being used, the more we can export, the more we're doing for the global environment. Well, well, that is, but the debate is so emotional, uh, people uh, won't uh, deal
1: in facts. Look, uh, You couldn't be more right on that. The, I don't know the precise figures, but the substance of that argument is, right, we have high-quality mm. thermal coal, for instance. Mm. That's been accepted for a long time. Uh, well, why shouldn't we export it? Uh, it, it delivers income for Australia. Mm. Uh, it helps uh, the Chinese. It enables the use of a slightly less polluting coal to the extent that it Mm. replaces coal from either domestic or other sources. And um, it's just overwhelmingly the common sense thing to do. And the emotion of the argument often prevents that kind of uh, consideration.
0: To come back to something you said a moment ago, a view I share, you'd like to see more debate about our preparedness, if you like, for what may be coming. I think there are two fronts that I'd just be interested in your views on. One is the military, uh, and uh, the other is, in fact, uh, uh, our supply chains because that's highly relevant to the energy debate. But on the on the on the military side of it, if you like, we've certainly seen the government making some noises in recent times. The, the, you know, the acquisition program has been ramped up. Uh, the subject, uh, we, if we believe the Finn review, they're having a very close look at the issue of the submarines because, at the very least, there's a terrible time gap that we're looking mm. at terrible time. Terrible yeah. time, and a very threatening one, in my view. Um, but I've actually seen some work done here in New South Wales amongst country people, the ones that I love in rural New South Wales. They're surprisingly um, disengaged from the debate about you know, military preparedness and even such critical things as ensuring that we've got our oil reserves here. Mm. And that's a very, very big one to my way of thinking. It's very close to my heart because I care about defence, but I also care about agriculture and keeping the economy going. We just don't have. The government's working on it. I give the ministers responsible credit for at least shaping up. But we've got just three refineries left. We've got one about to go. We have no crude of our own. We're meant to have 90 days on shore. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be expensive. But it really worries me that we haven't got it and that we include in our estimates of what we've got a lot of oil that's actually on ships still coming towards us. Mm. If something goes wrong, it wouldn't take much of a scare for those ship owners to say, well, we'll turn them away. What do we need to do to get the Australians, because everywhere I go, they are worried. They're concerned. And the government, I think, is doing a lot, but we need, I think you said it, you were referring to it. We need a, a, a real and an honest debate about this. We don't want to be like certain nations in the 1930s that we're pretending it'd all go away if we turned away, it won't.
1: No, I'd, I'd, um, I agree with that. Incidentally, I while I think you can always draw on history to instruct you, we've always likewise you've got to be careful that we don't overdraw on history and, and, and draw false comparisons and see threats. Um, uh, being bigger or different from what they really are, but on on the question of of uh, uh, our defences, our things like uh, our oil reserves, I, I see the beginnings of a debate on that. There's a lot mm. more talked about that now uh, on programs and by commentators than I would have seen a few years ago. Now, why why are we sort of apparently a bit complacent. And, well, I think part of it is that um, we've been very fortunate. Mm. Uh, We dodged the bullet of the global financial crisis, largely because, not entirely, but largely because of the very good shape in which the Howard Anderson government had left the economy, uh, but also uh, the um, export trade we had with North Asia, Mm. with China and Japan. I mean, that was an absolute boon. And what was that? It was... Iron it was coal, it was beef, it was all the things that, about which we've spoken. It just seems some kind of national act of ingratitude uh, that, that we should have large sections of the political class now talking about the phasing out of fossil fuels when it was our capacity to export them in large volume and at mm. good prices mm. to countries like China that saved Australia uh, in part the impact of the global financial crisis. It's only 10 years ago. Now, I I, I think we are still heavily influenced by oil. Something has always turned up to to bail us out and therefore, uh, until it's really confronting us, um, we don't turn our mind to it. I do think on the fuel security thing, there's a lot more debate. And obviously the government is looking at the submarine issue. One of the problems with that decision and I don't pretend to be an expert. One of the problems is that, t- t- to most Australians, it seemed counterintuitive t- to to award the contract to a French company for a submarine that hadn't yet been built. Yeah, uh, uh, it-, it just uh, people sort of thought, oh, that's that's because the 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 alternatives that were being debated at the time were obviously an arrangement with Japan, and that made a lot. To many Australians, that made an enormous amount of sense, uh, and and of course, uh, the age-old debate about um, um, nuclear submarines in the, in the United States. Now, it it it, it may, you know, and as I say, I don't pretend to know all of technical details, and I was assured at the time by um, the many experts uh, who covered the field that it was the right decision. But uh, I can understand why. Uh, and, and, and of course, as you said, most importantly of all, the time gap is huge.
0: Yes, it is huge. And uh, as I move around and 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 people engage me in conversation about where the country's at, when they get on to defence, the issue of the submarines is a big one because people don't have confidence in it. So at the and, of course, l- it,
1: it, 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 it will consume so much of the defence budget. Yes. It's huge. Yeah.
0: Yes, it, it is. So... Um let's, let's then um, leap to the issue of COVID showed us that we're very exposed. I think there was a report out of London from a, a London think tank that of the five eyes countries that you mentioned, Australia is the most dependent of all uh, on uh, other countries, mainly China, for supply chain security. Even agriculture is dependent upon certain income, uh, inputs that we no longer produce or only produce in very limited amounts that are critical to us feeding ourselves. One of the worries I have there is that immediately now the debate that COVID's easing is going back to, oh, we've got to be pure on climate change. Now, I'm not saying it's not important, but I am worried about the emotionalism of it. We seem to have lost sight of the fact that the Australian people expect their governments to prepare, we expected COVID. We all believe in our nation now, uh, You know, we look to our own governments not some global power out there, you know, the way the anywheres uh, that Lockhart talked about um, uh, might have uh, looked at uh, to look after us. Well, that supply chain issue has not gone away and the cost of energy is one of the main reasons why we've got into trouble. And I'm amazed about the debate on the cost of energy in this country. When we left office, we had, I think, the cheapest electricity in the Western world but energy right across the board now is quite crippling. And there hasn't been enough debate about, well, all right, well, if we keep on interfering with energy markets, if we, are, if we don't really get our energy costs down, we just won't restore manufacturing. And that may be critical in some supply chain areas, whether it's food, whether it's medicine, whether it's keeping hmm. basic industries going if something goes wrong. I'm,
1: I'm, I'll come to the um, energy climate change issue in a moment, but just on covid I think the most important thing uh, that has to be um, observed, deduced, included from the COVID experience is how well Australia has done Mm. and how well the institutions of our country have worked. Now, this is not complacency or smugness, but Australia, when you consider the size and the sort of society we are freewheeling democratic society people don't take all that warmly uh, sort of being told what to do but but it, it's been done in a way that uh, makes me feel very proud of what our country has achieved and we shouldn't lose sight of that one of the great things that's come out of this is is that <clears throat> we we've appear unlike other <clears throat> like countries and I think of Britain I think of America we appear to have found a sweet spot between the government's role and the private sector's role. Our health system has come through with flying colours. Now there have been weaknesses and there have been overdoses of a vaccine. The fact that you know we have a national debate about that, you know serious though the issue is, and I'm not making light of it, illustrates just how well we've done. Um, uh, and, and our death per head population, is one thirty-fifth, one thirty-fifth of what it is in in Britain, hmm. and you look at the co- and the cooperation between the states of Australia. Sure, I'm irked by some of the grandstanding of premiers and so forth. I accept from that, of course, Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales, not because she's a liberal and a friend of mine, but because she has adopted a very common sense, balanced approach. But having said all of that, and even accepting it have been big mistakes made with quarantine in Victoria. I think we have come through so well. And, and the Federation has worked. Some people have expressed alarm that the premiers are you know, um, on the stage and strutting their stuff. That's our system. Public health under our constitution is a state responsibility, it's not a federal responsibility. So let the Federation work. Sure, there have been some abuses, but that will, and over, uh, egging of the pudding on occasions, but the Federation's not going to break up. It's, it's a lamest talk. Uh, I think it's ridiculous. And and the other great thing is the way in which we've had a seamless cooperation between the public sector and the private sector. Uh, both have made a contribution. And and the fact that we do have a a, a very... We have a decentralised administration of public health because of the states and within the states, and I think... Particularly the one with which I'm most familiar, where I live in, in Sydney, in New South Wales, the breaking down of the administration of public health in this state has aided um, the uh, response. I and mean, the contract tracing system is terrific. Now, by comparison, I look at Britain. I mean, everybody on all sides of politics in Britain carries on as though the national health system is the greatest invention in mankind's history. Now, I'm sure uh, it's got a lot of virtues and everything, but I'm also suspicious that the very uniformity of it is perhaps one of the reasons why Britain has not done so well. There are other reasons as well, and, and I'm not trying to score cheap debating points at the, ex- at the expense of the Brits, but uh, I think this is an occasion where, without getting smug, or complacent, and putting aside the irritable, irritation we feel (laughs) with the behaviour of some premiers and the arbitrary closures and absurd comments like uh, um, Anastasia Palaszczuk's comment about, we've got New South Wales hospitals for New South Wales people and Queensland hospitals for our people. Well, there's no such thing as our people or your people, we're all Australians, and those sort of comments are are aggravating and, and deserve to be condemned. But having said all of that, the system has worked and we are remarkably lucky. Yes, we are. Uh, uh, and, and we should be very grateful. Now, why is it work? work? Because climate, it's helped. Yeah. Uh, we're an island continent, yeah. that's helped. Um, yeah. we've, we've got a federation which means that when you have trouble spots in one part of the country, they can be contained. And what's the difference in principle between locking down the Northern Beaches area of Sydney and locking down a state? No difference in principle. The concept is the same. You have an outbreak in a particular area, you know the source of it, and, 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 and you lock it down. Now, everybody clapped, well, not everybody clapped, but a lot of people accepted that lockdown in Northern Beaches area as being very necessary. Well, equally, sometimes when states are locked down, uh, that ought to be accepted now. Uh, I, I say all of that, recognising that there are legitimate criticisms of of individual states and the grandstanding, and we'll put all of that aside, but we have done so well uh, with this, and the Federation has worked, the public-private balance has worked, uh, and um, we, sh- we should feel that you know, we're entitled to, Give ourselves just a modest tick for that. Not, not get complacent. And and sure, there are... You, know, you were talking about supply chain. Yeah, there are difficulties. And, and, and I think the exposure of our potential vulnerabilities in that area has been very valuable, very valuable indeed. I'm not sure that there's a simple solution to that. You don't alter um, supply chains overnight, Uh and, and of course, how that plays into the energy debate uh, is obvious. I can't think of a, a better response other than to remind you of what I said a few moments ago about the absurdity of, of clapping the, uh, or cheering on the erosion of, of coal and the like as a contribution without understanding that it's continuing part of the energy equation. I mean, it is. A hard question to answer, isn't it, that we have got such expensive electricity now, in some parts of the country, compared with what it was ten or fifteen years ago.
0: Well, it's a real issue. It is, and it does affect our international competitiveness. Of course, in and and say.
1: and that, of course, plays on things such as supply chain. Because in the yes. end, all those things are are, are a product of, of of the economic environment, and and. Why have we lost manufacturing? Because it's cheaper to make things in other countries.
0: Yes, it is. It's as simple as that. And that is a challenge. And I think my real point is that in the range of challenging issues that confront us, we need to be a little more honest and a bit more rational in debates over important things like emissions and Mm -hmm. recognise that there are trade-offs. It's not as simple as saying there's (coughs) some new Nirvana. You know, if, if we just go down the renewables road, if you're not careful, you'll end up, this is the great irony of it, you'll end up producing a worse global outcome oh, yes. because we force efficient mm. industries cleaner producing smelters or whatever offshore from Australia. The world's not going to stop producing mm. or consuming the aluminium that they make. It'll be made in a country where the standards are lower and where mm. the emissions of course are higher. It will. Of course and it will. we need to be more sophisticated well, that was in the way one we of, think of through. That
1: was one of the reasons, one of many reasons years ago why I was reluctant to see Australia... Ratify the Kyoto Protocol because the way it worked would have, in part, produced that outcome. But and that's that's history now.
0: We exceeded those targets uh, anyway, as as you know, the Kyoto targets without ratifying. Mm. Uh, and of course, it was done largely by land management.
1: Practices. Well, land land management, and, mm. and that's right because you can do mm. things. And some of that was deliberate, some of it was fortuitous. Uh, and that often happens. And, and and the I mean, I remember having years ago having a conversation with Tony Blair. Uh, not la- not long after he'd become prime Minister of Britain and and he was telling me how of course you know Britain had no trouble using his ambition because coal mines were being closed yes. and you know and I thought to myself yes and who opposed the closure <laughs> yes. he and his party railed against yeah. Margaret Thatcher for uh, her policies that allowed inefficient mm. coal mines mm. to close.
0: I can't help making the observation through uh, on the way through that in fact just as, we exceeded our Kyoto targets because of land management practices. A big part of the solution to the problem of emissions and absorbing carbon, again, can be found in agriculture oh, and yes. land management. Oh,
1: yes. Yeah. Technology, uh, oh, right. uh, that's a whole... Uh, yeah. That land management is yes. a whole subject in itself.
0: And Australia, we're, we're, we're up there with the world's best. We may even be the world's best. and We're just close to cracking the secrets of quick, easy, affordable soil carbon measurement which will allow for the issuing of permits much more widely, extra income stream for farmers and better quality food if we can get it right. Mm. So, you know, there are clever people in this country and there are real options that we don't talk about enough. But I want to come back again to recovery from COVID and the issue of public sector debt. Mm. Um, I think the whole of the West now faces horrendous debt levels. I think they're quite threatening. I see George Shultz writing brilliant articles. I did. I
1: read that article. The last article Mm. he penned before he died, a Mm. remarkable man at the age of 100.
0: Yeah. And I just want to tease those issues out. If we can go back to 1996, and I've said this before and people have probably heard me, but Mm. one of the first things he said at our first cabinet meetings, we're going to stop the intergenerational theft. We want to wind back this debt and the uh, never-ending deficits that are confronting us. It was at that stage around 19% of GDP. You felt very strongly about the importance of getting public sector debt under control. Can you just recap why you felt then and presumably still feel that this really matters because there's a lot of evidence around now suggesting that people have lost the understanding of why it's important to run public finances very carefully and prudently? Well, I certainly
1: remember that first Cabinet meeting. I said all of those things, but I also said uh, that... Uh, every area of government spending had to make a contribution, except except defence defence because defence yeah, had been not... starved of money yeah. uh, under the previous government, and uh, I felt we had to invest more. Mm. Now, why is it so important? It's 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 the simple proposition that no country can live beyond its means. That um, uh, in in ev- ultimately, if you spend as a nation beyond your capacity, you lose control of the economy inflationary pressures re-emerge, And the big danger we have at the moment is that because we haven't had inflation for a long time, and because um, there was a lot of spending in the wake of the global financial crisis, but it didn't reignite inflation, there's a dangerous belief that it can never come back. Now that's not right, it can come back. And the burden of that article that you mentioned Uh, that George Shultz and others wrote was that it can come back. And he spoke of the early 60s when uh, the problems of high inflation were being generated but not fully realised. And and also another splendid article in the Financial Times by Martin Wolf that reproduced in our Fin Review uh, making the same argument. So uh, I am concerned that we've become... in uh, complacent about this, but having said that, I thought what the government did was right, and it is true as Josh Frydenberg has said on a couple of occasions publicly that he spoke to me about it, and I said there's no ideology in this. Uh, we we are closing down the economy, but mm. meaning the government. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, whereas mm. um, in recessions, it's closed down indirectly, I suppose, by the government for. Bring in the wrong policies but directly it's not it's closed down by private sector decisions but we said to the private sector you've got to stop doing business you've got to stop yeah. earning an income yeah. Now, in unprecedented those, really. and unprecedented in those circumstances yeah. you cannot yeah. um, uh, walk away from uh, providing uh, support and i think the support the government provided was right i mean you can argue about this or that um quantum but but i think overall and, and it is so far proved successful because both the Treasury and the bank and other commentators have said that the unemployment has been not as high as expected. The recovery Mm -hmm. has been more rapid than expected. And overall, we're we're coming out and it appears to be working. Now, as for the timing, and I think the government's recent announcement about increasing the unemployment benefit, uh, or job seeker as it's now called, Uh, Something that I thought a while ago might have been done because uh, you have to look after people who through no fault of their own uh, 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 need help. But we had to do what the government did, but having done it, it has to stick to uh, the way back. uh, You can't indefinitely extend emergency measures. and, and, And that's the great danger that we face. And and the other great danger we have to worry about because the American economy dominates all is whether there will be too much stimulus in the United States. The American economy is recovering very well. It's huge. It's less regulated than just about any other economy. Therefore, its recovery capacity uh, is is greater. Uh, But The new administration has got trillions of dollars on the table of of extra stimulus, and there's a real worry. And it was at the root of those two columns that we spoke about a moment ago that it might be too much. Mm. And because once the inflation bottle, uh, inflation genie, gets out of the bottle in the United States, now I know people say, "What on earth is he talking about? Inflation getting you know." becoming a problem. It hasn't been a problem for ages, and it's not likely to be. Well, uh, people would have maybe thought of that in the in in the '60s, and, and of course it just became not a problem but a nightmare uh, in the 1970s, and it took interest rates at crushingly high levels, implemented mm. and initially by Paul Volcker as chairman of the Fed, and and to squeeze inflation out of the system.
0: Yes, it's worth remembering that you know if you get inflation back again, which I think <clears> is possible.
1: It's possible. Yeah,
0: yeah but um, it drives interest rates, and that ninety-six billion dollars worth of debt that we used to talk about. One of the things that we then followed on with, as we got it under control, was the amount of interest we were saving the taxpayer that oh, let us course. build hospitals yeah. and roads and yeah, what have yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. it was seven or eight billion that we. Oh, I
1: was an enormous. But mind you, the. The saving was higher because the interest rate was That's greater. my point. Yeah, it is. Whereas and
0: there's a real threat there if they, interest rates start to rise again mm. because of inflation. Well, if it
1: you started know, rising again, you've got to borrow at the higher rates when when, yes. when, when the borrowings at the lower rates mature. That's a, yes. That is a problem.
0: That is potentially a massive problem for mm. America too. But just one thing that I'd be now, interested
1: in I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but, but you can never
0: assume... Mm
1: that, that um, uh, uh, inflation has been uh, The abolished. genie put back in the bottle forever. No,
0: no, you never assume that. I just would be interested in views on one thing. There's a view in some quarters that we have actually had inflation. It's been in asset prices. Oh, right. that's right. And that that actually is opening up something that's really... It goes back to that very... It was the first time I'd heard the term used at that first cabinet meeting, intergenerational theft. It's hard for young people now. Oh, well,
1: it, 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 buying, buying the first house, mm. Is 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 a is is a huge difficulty. Although, mind you, 25 years ago, buying a first house involved paying a much higher interest rate than you do now. Yes. And and so you have to be a little judicious um, uh, with with the timeframes when you mount arguments such as this. But there's no doubt that um, one of the reasons there appears to be. A boom in house prices is the low interest rates. You can borrow money at ridiculously low interest rates. Uh, equally, you don't get paid much if you leave your money in the bank. And I think one of the contributions being made to this house price inflation is uh, a lot of retired people with a few bob to use that Australian expression, but who've never been in in the um, share market. Mm. Um, uh, the rate of return on on, on an interest-bearing deposit is is, is is just derisory, so you see a better return in buying a property, uh, and and renting it out. Yes, a, a far better mm. return, mm. Uh, and and more people, a, a modest but comfortable means of doing that, and there's a lot of them in Australia because uh, um, we have a lot of people who. Um, yeah, it might loosely be called comfortable middle-class people, but they've accumulated at some uh, assets and and want to use their money in a sensible, cautious way, getting nothing from an interest-bearing deposit, whereas five or six years ago, they'd have got something. Yes. And they'd have been happy with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they're not anymore for obvious reasons. Now, those things are all playing into it. and and And, of course, in the United States, what quantitative easing or uh, you know, printing, print, money. printing money, or bond buying, whatever yeah. you want to call it, uh, has uh, led to an inflation in, and it's made the very wealthy even wealthier yeah. because they have uh, taken advantage of that to uh, invest on in the stock market and do all sorts of things. Different circumstance, but it all feeds into our own economic position simply because of the dominance of the American economy.
0: Now, to come back to our agreed position that the government, governments, plural, and the Commonwealth government have handled, uh, you know, COVID incredibly well on on the whole. On the whole, yeah. And they were right to open the checkbook. It had to be done. Mm. Uh, The reality is, of course, though, that we now face a situation where we've accumulated a very substantial debt that's going to grow. We're Mm. on our way towards a trillion or so, uh, which is pretty substantial. It's a fair chunk of GDP. It's a very
1: big chunk of and mm. And it will not be easy. Its repayment no. will involve an enormous amount of discipline in relation to future claims, uh, but also in unwinding the emergency measures. Uh, and it will also rely very heavily on um, continued economic growth. Yes. And uh, it was in the end, uh, if the best response is to grow our way out of the deficits. And uh, that comes, again, to the question of what what economic changes might be needed, what regulatory, what reform might be needed uh, to spur that growth. Now, um, right at the moment, um, big economic changes are not on the agenda simply because we've got, you know... a, a, more than a bite-sized economic challenge in handling the the pandemic, but we have to return to things like whether there are aspects of our taxation system that need changing. Uh, to the extent that some of the um, re-regulation of the labour market that occurred uh, over the last occurred over the last ten or fifteen years should be reversed, uh, it still it it surprises me how much resistance there is to uh, the government's industrial relations legislation. It's quite modest what it's proposing.
0: This, this comes back... Now, I've always been struck by the way you understand the Australian people. You're a master at it. We've got to create an environment, I think, for a, a more vigorous and a more honest debate because you can see it emerging now. It's, there's, a, there's a parallel, interestingly, in the, in the way the Labor Party controlled the economy a lot of statism during the Second World War, mm. rationing. They wanted to continue it after the war. Well, it was a huge wanted... mistake, that. Yes. Uh, well, Menzies... Politically,
1: yeah, it. well... well yep. they, the they... Yeah,
0: the Australian people didn't want it. They rejected it, and Menzies mm. wound back rationing, stopped the drift towards nationalisation of the banks and so on. Mm. But there's a parallel now, a debate, you can see it emerging, particularly amongst young people, um, and I'm not being critical, it's just, no, I think, it, mate, it's it, whether... It's a legitimate observation. They, they, they sort of say, you know, gee... The government was able to keep us safe. That's great. Um, What's the problem with that debt? And why can't we? Mm. There's almost a bit of new monetary theory, dare I say.
1: I I think there is a danger.
0: The idea you can print money, you can make money, the government uh, could.
1: And and one of the realities for the Australian public of of, of COVID has been that in certain sectors, you have been absolutely destroyed business-wise. Yes. If you're running a, a small restaurant coffee shop in a CBD, or mm. if, particularly if you've just started it, you've got that kind of thing, or anything to do with hospitality, uh, you've suffered very badly. By contrast, anybody involved in, in building or construction uh, has never had it so busy. They've been flat out. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and, of course, the public service, uh, has not been made vulnerable, and And it, it's a very uneven, and for a lot of people, they think, well, gee, this is good. You know, this is the way to go. The government's uh, uh, all over us with money and uh, making decisions, and maybe we should keep doing that. The reality, of course, is that they, many of the things the government has done is will be seen uh, at a fiscal level uh, as special measures to deal with a a special crisis. And once the crisis is gone, you no longer need the measures. And and educating the public into accepting that is is quite a challenge. The early signs are that the government is, in my view, going to stick to uh, its commitment to wind back these measures, and it has to, and it needs support. Because this idea that uh, you leave a permanent uh, uh, legacy, A greater government involvement in the economy would defy everything philosophically that I and you and many of our former colleagues and our current colleagues believe in. We do not believe in uh, too much state intervention. We believe in the government providing a safety net. We believe in the government um, uh, intervening in special circumstances, which it has done. But once those special circumstances have evaporated, we believe in the government retreating.
0: And and, uh, to pick that point up, I'd, I'd, I'd like to test your reactions to... I was asked a question after a lunch that I spoke at here in Sydney yesterday, and I responded by saying, look, I think it's really important that we accept the principle of pulling the government back, reducing expenditure, for at least two critical reasons that I think the Australian people can understand. One is, there will be another shock. Oh, yes. There is always another shock. It'll be a pandemic or another meltdown. There will be another Mm. shock. Mm. And we've done very well this time because we had shots in the locker, so to speak, Mm. to fire back. And, you know, I think Mm. our government can take a bit of credit for that. All those years ago, we're still, to some extent, Mm. standing on those shoulders. I really believe that. But secondly, even um, Peter Costello, yours and my colleague, before COVID said, the nation's got to face the fact we'll have to spend more on defense Mm. And what really surprised me was the number of people, there were a lot of people at the lunch, who came up to me afterwards and said, uh, I found that I hadn't thought it through, but you're absolutely right. And, and it just seems to me to really important, not for me to tell the government how to do things, but we've got to prepare the Australian people, if you like, for the next set of circumstances.
1: Uh, oh, yeah, I, I, I agree. That's always, a, you know, there's always a, a, a forward leadership role for any government mm. uh, to start talking about the landscape after the current challenges uh, diminished. Mm. And we're getting to that stage. I think yeah. we're still clearly the government's got to focus on the vaccine rollout at the moment. And 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 uh, that is incredibly important. And if done successfully, and I've no doubt it will be, it will be incredibly beneficial.
0: Can we come to something that you and I have also talked a lot about is the rise of what's now called wokeism. Mm. Mm. Uh, and you see it in America with the unbelievable polarization that, that really uh, as somebody who admires that country it just dismays me the way the inability of americans to talk to americans indeed i can't help thinking the incoming president had an incredible opportunity he gave a you know an inaugural speech that talked about reunifying people but in a way he then proceeded to do a whole lot of things that must have made the deplorables think that they were still deplorables rather than doing what perhaps is a time-honoured custom in Australia and going on a listening tour. Uh, one of my conversationalists, who was a Democrat, said that if Biden was to reunite America, he should go first for a month before he revoked anything Trump had done and do a listening tour in the Red States. I thought it was an interesting observation, mm. you know, where what he called the, the, the three Fs still reign, family, faith and fathering. That was an interesting definition from a you know, a well-left centre, a figure who was saying he hopes Biden can reunite, but he doesn't whether know whether he can. He should have gone on a listening tour. He said, hear what those people are saying. Why do they feel disaffected? Why did they still vote for President Trump, et cetera, et cetera? Um, my, my, the question that I'm leading to is, to this point in time, John, I think particularly middle Australia you know, has sort of not fallen for that sort of wokeism, that sort of division, that sort of extreme... Um, political correctness and identity politics. It's here and it's too prevalent in academia. I've argued that many a times and therefore it's filtering into our schools. It's certainly in our media. But middle Australia, I think, is resistant and still looking for a more realistic approach to life and cooperating with one another even when we disagree. Am I right? How do you uh, see I it? I think you are absolutely
1: right. I think the mindset... In the United States is different, and one of the reasons is different, is that economic division in the United States is greater than it was in Australia. And one of the extraordinary blessings this country has is that we have a very large middle class. Mm-hmm. We sure we have some poor people who need help, and many of them more help, and we have some very rich people, and I don't envy them. Good luck to them, providing they pay their taxes and they earn their money honestly. I, I believe in in wealth generation very strongly, but the great bulk of us live in the middle, Mm. And, and, and therefore there aren't those divisions that exist in the United States and in parts of Europe. And the other great thing that this country has done, and I often bang on about this, is that we have found a sweet spot or a middle spot when it comes to social welfare provision. We are more generous than the Americans are, we're looking after the less well-off. But we're not as mollycoddling and as interfering as many of the European countries are. And we've got, a, I think, by and large, a happy medium. Now, that doesn't mean that can't be made better. and A lot of people would violently disagree with me and say it's too mean. or And some people would say we're too generous. Why should people get the doll at all? Well, I mean, one of the reasons people should get the doll is that all the evidence in the United States tells you that if people have no money mm. to look after for a family and no money to feed themselves, they'll resort to crime. Mm. So there's a self-interest, apart from any moral, and there's a big moral imperative in this as well. So I'm, uh, you know, I, I think there are different, I think by and large, um, uh, Australia, Australians today haven't bought wokeism, but she, I'd like to see more leaders in politics, and the community banging it on the head uh, when it arises. I and mean, I'm struck by the, and every time there's some <laughs> absurd um, uh, story about language and and, and, and whatever, uh, even to the extent of trying to ease out expressions like mother and father and brother and sister. I mean, how absurd. I'm struck by the number of people who say, isn't that ridiculous, yes. et cetera. Now, I'd, I'd like um, uh, to hear a, a lot of that from uh, political and, and thought leaders, and there's there's a there's a sort of a tenderness about uh, jumping on that sort of stuff, and people will respond if you jump on it. Uh, you'll you'll get a tick. Now it's not a political uh, thing; it's it's just common sense, and I think we are we do regard that as nonsense. But don't assume uh, that the march of that sort of stuff in the schools and everything won't confuse and have an impact on. Uh, children and younger people, because that mm. is all they're going to get, grow up with, whereas when I mean, you and I didn't grow up with that nonsense, I'm sure we grew up with other nonsenses, but uh, mm. we didn't, and, and our, our children didn't, but their children may, and we have to be very careful uh, that it doesn't find its way into school curricula and the like, and this is obviously the, the, the concern that arose with the safe schools programs in various states, not that people wanted to see minorities discriminated against. I I don't want anybody's sexual preference to be a disability for them, but I I just can't for the life of me uh, understand how um, uh, society's understanding of these things, which has endured forever, uh, should be turned on its head by... um, what can only be termed, I suppose, minority fundamentalism.
0: (laughs) I'll remember that term. Interestingly, um, I've just seen some quite high quality work. As you know, politicians do a lot of polling. And we used to... Really? (laughs) (laughs) We were always trying to work out, uh, you know, what people were thinking. And in rural Australia, nearly always, when you went out to find out what what people were concerned about, um, uh, in, in my base, it was, it would be, education, health and transport, roads and transport. Uh, I've seen some recent work which rather amazed me. The absolute number one concern for a lot of people, the the biggest single concern, was the quality of education and access to that education. But number two was, can we get the ideology out of our Mm. classrooms? That was number two. Mm. Even in COVID times in regional New South Wales... and,
1: And this is an issue for... Independent schools as well as government yes, schools. Yes, it is. This yes. idea that, oh, it's just, you know, which some people on, what well, I might broadly define as our side of politics say, oh, well, it's a, it's a problem with government. No, it, it is with some sectors, mm. government schools, but it's also an issue with some independent mm. schools. And, yes. and um, uh, it, it, it's an issue that has to be confronted. And people just have to be more assertive. The There's no doubt is you say, that it, it's not something that um, the great bulk of middle Australia buys, but the great bulk of middle Australia is in, in 20 years' time will be very different from the bulk of middle Australia now. and They yes. will be people who are being educated at the moment. They're not people who uh, were educated uh, when these sort of things you know, just never entered the dialogue.
0: Absolutely. And on that, a very interesting Australian academic, John Carroll, uh, who is at La Trobe, recently wrote that the three major components of Australian civic culture are, firstly, attachment to the nation's institutions and respect for authority, a practical democratic temper, and a culture of hard work, the so-called Protestant work ethic. Now, you know, I think um, following many histories, uh, historians, and I, I think Carroll would agree with this, I'd actually add the broad influence of Christianity, particularly Mm -hmm. evangelical Christianity and Catholicism. Mm. And the impact also that has to be taken into account now is high immigration rates, Um, uh, you know, for much of the time since white settlement and very high since the years you and I were in in government. So can I just ask you generally, what do you think will be the sort of major factors that will sort of influence and shape the Australia that our kids and grandkids are going to grow up in?
1: Well, I'd, I'd, I'd broadly agree with um, uh, Carol's uh, assessment. Uh, One thing I would add to it, and I've alluded to it earlier, is this great sense of balance. I've often said when talking about the character of Australia is that we owe an enormous amount to the British, uh, and and we shouldn't be reluctant to say it. Um, Free media, parliamentary democracy, the rule of law, broadly speaking, a sense of humour, uh, and the English part of the British Inheritance, of course, a wonderful game in cricket. <laughs> but I, I, just, I, just,
0: I, just, I just sort of... But, yeah, but rugby in, was an English game too.
1: indeed. Not just played in But having said that, one of the great genius elements of the uh, of, of the Australian achievement uh, is that we rejected the undesirable aspects of the British Inheritance, yeah. the aristocracy and the class distinction, and the snobbery and you know i'm not i, I don't don't want to over overdo it but but it, it's it's very important uh, there is a marked difference there and, and it's had over the years i think it has had a restraining effect on the development of british society i think it's largely gone now, but gee, it took a long time and 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 we just have not had that um, and 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 that's a tribute to the sense of balance that Australians have had. We looked at the inheritance and said, yeah, we'll take that, that and that, and that's good. Um, uh, but we're not going to have that and that. And, and that's something that we've been very good at. And, and it's the same with the debate that goes on in so many areas like health and education. We resolved decades ago the question of whether it was better to have public or private education. We had a mixed system. Choice. 34% mm. of Australian school children are educated in the non-government sector. I remember telling George W. Bush that. He just couldn't believe it. Mm. And because one of the things that constrains the situation in America is that you, under the Constitution, you government can't give direct financial assistance. to, For example, the parochial Catholic mm. schools, they give assistance to parents everything. But... Um, we, and we had big debates on that, and the state aid debate of 30 or 40 years ago was very vigorous, it but it's been resolved now, I hope, and, and everybody accepts we've got a, a dual system, plural system.
0: It's choice Choice, parental choice. Mm. And we did a lot to try and yeah, carry and, that forward. To, to maintain it, and,
1: and, mm. and I think that's... We've resolved. And, and equally with health. And I have to say, and you, you remember this, that when... We were preparing for the 96 election after I came back as opposition leader in 1995. I said to colleagues that we had to accept that the Australian public wanted Medicare. Now, I didn't like Medicare when it was introduced. I railed against it and, and, and I made speeches condemning it uh, and, and used all sorts of descriptors. But in the end, I accepted the Australian public wanted it. And what we did was to accept that. And so, right, we'll keep Medicare, we'll make it better, we'll add to it by supporting private health insurance. And, and, and that enabled, uh, you know, one of our former colleagues, uh, Tony Abbott, to repeatedly say at question time that Medicare, the Coalition is the best friend that Medicare's <laughs> ever had. Now, I know that was challenged by a lot of people, particularly on the Labor side, who, who were the authors of Medicare. And, and yeah, look, they were right on that. That's what the public wanted. And sometimes in politics, However strongly you feel about something, if the public has delivered a verdict on something, you just have to get on with it and accept that decision.
0: Well, that is the core of democracy. Hey, of
1: course it is. No, course and, it. and this is, what I'm afraid, where whatever people thought about the Trump presidency, and there were many good things about it, uh, he should have left the field after the umpire's finger went up.
0: Well, his legacy might have been very different if he had. They're very different. And it might have helped heal America. But anyway... Uh, more effectively, or made a contribution. Um, But but we touched on immigration and its impact on on the shape of the nation. And when we got into government, there was a very high level, you talk about what the people want, level of discomfort over immigration and the mix, as you recall. And we moved to rein in the absurdly loose family reunion program, but to rebuild confidence by looking for skilled um, immigrants and so forth. And I think it was a remarkable story. Confidence re-emerged, and actually, towards the end, we were running not of the sort we've had in recent years, but quite a high rate of immigration, and there was great confidence in it. And I've always felt that it was clear evidence that uh, that you were in favour of what I would call a multiracial Australia. Mm. Uh, kind no, happy to no, build that.
1: Very much a mul. Yeah, I was, and um, it, it, it's fair to say that as a result of that change. Um, For a number of years, the three principal source countries of migration were India, China and Britain slash Ireland. Now, I don't think anybody could suggest that was other than than fairly multiracial. And uh, I thought that the golden rule with immigration was that in Australia, while ever the government is seen to be in control of the program public will support it but when the government is seen to lose control of arrivals mm. the public it's very uneasy mm. and um, that was clearly the case uh, in 2001 when the time of the tamper and that huge debate uh, about unauthorized arrivals and I think we did the right thing and, and in taking the stance we did we guaranteed the public would continue to support migration, and and strong migration um, came back, and then you had the problem when the Rudd government undid what we had done, and you had a surge of illegal arrivals, and that caused a lot of disquiet. Now clearly, uh, migration has dried up significantly because of COVID, but it will we'll get through that and we'll come back, and and I want to see Australia be an open country when it comes to migration, but we've got to choose migrants according to the contribution they make to our country. Uh, and we shouldn't discriminate on the grounds of race or religion or ethnic origin, but we should uh, have a mind to the national interest. And and I think we have should have a mind to the idea of integrating people. We used to call it assimilate. Um, I don't mind which word is used, probably integrate. <laughs> makes people happier, but I'm, I've am i always had a bit of a problem with, with multiculturalism as a philosophy. I've, I've had no trouble with multiracialism, but I've adhered to the view, which I articulated on many occasions, that we draw people from the four corners of the earth, but when they come here we want them united behind a common set of Australian values. And that's something that people are comfortable with. And right. I found during the, the height of that debate in 2001, uh, time and time again, I would come across somebody with, whose name was Italian or Greek or Yugoslav or Baltic yeah. and, and they would say, you're absolutely right, I came here because I wanted to live in Australia. Yeah. Now I still love you know, uh, uh, my Greek heritage and, and, and so forth and that's as it should be.
0: But there's a very big issue at heart there in my view and that is that, for want of a better word, uh, some of the elites, uh, some of the academics who seem to loathe our mm. own cultural roots. Oh, yeah. they no... used multiculturalism for a mm. cover, for mm. weakening the very, mm. if you like, values and institutions that have made us such a desirable place for, for those people you're talking about to come to. Well... That's been my worry. Now,
1: now you know, of course, so obviously, in the, in the years immediately after... Um, um, World War II, people came from countries that had been invaded or occupied, had suffered very severely. They saw Australia as being you know, on, on, on the side of many of the countries, of the countries that had helped to free them. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, that's particularly uh, true of some of the Europeans. But there's no doubt that um, uh, this, um, uh, how shall I put it, this distaste for our cultural inheritance which is mouthed by some of the people you choose to call elites. There's no doubt that uh, uh, that is uh, occurring. And I'm, as you know, chairman of the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation. That's not an exercise in triumphalism. It's just uh, asking people um, to understand who we are and where we came from. And, And unless you understand who you are and where you come from, um, you can't really <clears throat> um, think constructively about the future. And all of these things that we take for granted, the freedom of the media, the, the incorruptible judiciary, a parliamentary system, uh, all of those things are a product of Western civilisation. It doesn't mean to say they've been perfectly practised. We saw an attempt fairly uh, recently by a large company to, to <laughs> put the mockers on... Uh, Yes. Free expression. Unfortunately, uh, to its great credit, the Australian government resisted it.
0: I thought that was a very high point for the government and for the the Treasurer. Very, very,
1: very meritorious performance
0: by the Treasurer in particular. And it will have been watched around the world Mm. and given a big tick by freedom lovers everywhere. Well, it should be
1: because it Mm. was an outrageous uh, uh, attempt uh, to um, bully a government and governments... uh, When you bully a government in a democracy, you're bullying the people.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. I take the point. You're not bullying Scott Morrison and
1: Josh Frydenberg. You're bullying Mm. the Australian people.
0: Yeah, there's a sort of a rough parallel to reverse it, isn't it? That when we have a go, when we express our concerns about the values and the attitudes and the behaviour of the Chinese Communist Party, we're not condemning the Chinese people. No, no, of course we're not. It's a a contradistinction almost, isn't it? It it is, it is. Can we come then finally to... um, I think a view that I, you and I would share is that a strong civil society essentially will shape democracy. It's the antidote to statism, if you like. Uh, that uh, the little platoons mm. um, Edmund Burke, little Edmund, platoons. Yeah, the, the groupings in society, the sporting groups, the charity groups, the mm. religious groups, the, even the school community, yes. uh, the hall community in a small country town, the Rodeo committee, whatever it happens to be. Uh, you know, where we find a lot of our life and a lot of our relational joys and what have you. Great ball walk against big intrusive government wanting to tell us what to do. This is quite an issue, I think, in Australia today. And where I just wanted to come to you is that it seems to me that one of the things that people have stopped talking about in politics today for a variety of reasons, which I find pretty challenging, is in fact the family. It's the most basic of those patterns. It's the place where our children are best raised, Mm. where they're best looked after. It's the most effective form of welfare delivery for those who might temporarily or permanently have particular needs. Uh, The whole society uh, that I uh, know and understand to be vibrant and healthy and made up of people who can contribute to the maximum seems to emanate from what happens in those very early formative years. We don't talk about it much anymore, John.
1: No, I don't think we do, and I, I certainly share the drift of what you said, particularly your reference. Uh, and I, I used to put it this way, that uh, um, a properly functioning family is the best and most efficient social welfare system that mankind's ever devised. And, and you know, the family provides you with, with, with emotional, social, occupational, all sorts of support. And, and and there's nothing stronger than the family bond in our society and it's the greatest and most durable little platoon, if I can put it uh, that way, that uh, we have. And it's even more important now because people don't join no. organisations as much as they used to. Um, and in this um, Facebook uh, 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 World in which people live on their handheld devices and so forth, the socializing influence of the family is even more important for that and all sorts of other reasons. We don't talk about it as much, and and when we do talk about a lot of the debates, that are sort of a, 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 within some kind of negative framework about rather than uh, policies that make it easier for families to stay together and make it easier for uh, parents to make choices about their children. Uh, I, I, I would like to see more debate about it. I think some of the policies that we had that were dismantled by, I'm sorry to say, both sides of politics, more by the Labor Party than, than our side, but I think some of those financial provisions we made for families. People derided the baby bonus, for example, it was easy poke fun about it. But actually it was a simple way a non-judgmental way of saying we recognise that when you have children uh, there's an economic cost involved. It's a cost you know, you're obviously prepared to uh, uh, to uh, accept because you want to have the child. But if we can provide some assistance at the time and I remember looking at all sorts of and combinations of means tests and so forth, and I came to the conclusion the simplest thing was to have a non-means-tested flat payment irrespective of income, but you know, that, that didn't endure. And uh, I, I think you know, the name was unfortunate because people could poke fun at it, but there was nothing wrong with it. And it actually uh, was one of a number of measures that made a contribution to a slight uh, uptick in uh, the uh, fertility rate at the time. Now, we're, people are throwing up their arms in horror now that we're going to have the low, slowest population growth since World War I. Well, that's largely but not totally because of reduced migration, but it's also because of other things.
0: Ninety countries in the world today have a declining population. Yeah. Ninety. Ninety. And in fact, it may very well be that many countries... Um, have a real crisis here with ageing populations yeah. uh, only a few short decades away. And here's the irony, many of them will probably be fighting with one another over immigrant workers and uh, opening their borders. Mm, mm, <laughs> the mm. Now, I'm not is, saying, you know, I'm talking, things can maybe, evolve but it's in the unexpected ways. It,
1: it, it's...
0: But the underlying principle of ensuring that we need children coming through yeah, well, well, is mean, the our greatest asset. I the greatest
1: responsibility we have as a society is to raise the next generation. Uh,
0: and we depend on them and do yeah, Of course
1: we do. And, and um, I think anything that, that um, um, places that at the centre of public debate and, and makes it easier for families, uh, however they are composed, to do that, it should be supported.
0: Well, John, uh, we live uh, in a great country. We're incredibly fortunate to be Australians. Mm. Uh, and I always count myself as unbelievably fortunate to have served with you and other senior members of that government we were part of. It's been terrific. Thank you. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further
0: content, visit johnanderson.net.au.